Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in your well-beloved Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth, divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed and brought together under his most gracious rule, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and that's the collect appointed for today, November, uh, Sunday, November the 21st, 2021. We've uh, had a kind of a quiet week this week, I guess. Um, doesn't feel like we did a whole lot at any rate. Um, changing some things up on the way I'm doing things as far as my workouts and stuff are concerned, so that's been kind of nice to do some different new things, and we'll see how that goes. It's uh stepping up the intensity of the workouts trying to lose some weight by doing that and also build a stronger core um it's been um an interesting week in some ways i guess um we had a great trip this week over to knoxville a couple hours away we went over there to see some family members we hadn't seen in about 20 years and it was just absolutely fantastic to be with them we really had a good time we weren't there very long but um but we had a really good time with them it's they've been in ministry for uh, a long long time um and it was nice to kind of hear their perspective and hear what's going on in their lives and in their kids' lives, their grandkids' lives, and, and watch the Lord be faithful through the generations to them who have been faithful to him. And so it's exciting whenever you see and hear those kinds of stories. And so it was a really nice visit with them and looking forward to Thanksgiving and having some other people here, uh, seeing some people we hadn't seen in a while and, and getting together with friends and family and, and enjoying a couple of days of um, just being <laughs> as opposed to doing, I think. I mean, there'll be some doing, certainly, because I've got to make all the meal and all that, which I love to do, so that's not a problem. Um, it's it's more fun for me uh, to to make those meals whenever we have uh, other people. So that's good. So continuing to have a good time with the study that we're doing on the book of Ruth, and, and I'll be coming out with some videos and stuff on that soon. I've got to kind of get a, a good feel for what the flow of that would look like, but trying to get some things done there, and, and maybe after the first of the year start being able to do some uh, video recordings on that, and I'll post um those video, I'll, I'll post links to those once we get that started. But uh, yeah, so excited about new things on the horizon and all that. So that that's always a good thing. So I hope you've had a good week. It's certainly a lot colder right now than it has been. Um, we're going to have some a really cold night. I think Monday night it's going to be like 19 degrees or something crazy like that. So um, anyway, so we're we're doing well. I think um, just kind of you know, taking it easy right now and preparing ourselves for the. Uh, for the upcoming uh, holiday season of Thanksgiving and then Advent and then Christmas uh, and New Year's and all that. So there's a lot of um, a lot of good things happening, I think. So uh, I hope they are in your life as well. And if there's anything I can pray, be praying for for you, please let me know on the Facebook page uh, or send me a direct message on the Facebook page, and that'd be fine too. Um, and we will add you to our prayer list. But um, Today, as we're moving towards Advent, we, this is the last Sunday before Advent, which is, it just seems impossible to believe that that would be true, but it is. It's the last Sunday before Advent, and so what we look at today is Christ the King, that, that He is the King, and, and there's a uh, question, I guess, sometimes in, in some parts of Christianity is, how did, how did He become King? Uh, well, He became King through the process of glorification, 
which includes the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension. And that's when you see him on the throne uh, is after that, uh, after that process of glorification is complete. And then he has a throne at the right hand of the Father. And here in the passages we're going to see today has to do with what does it look like to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords, as we said in the um, in the pat in the collect for today and, and so i want to think about that and talk about that but one of the main things that i want to focus on has something to do with with the word truth because it's uh, something jesus says is his mission in this gospel reading today as he comes before pilate for his trial so we're going to look at that and and look together at truth because i think that's it's the thing the concept even that is most under attack at least in america i I don't have any earthly idea what it looks like in other parts of the west but but at least in america the thing that's most under attack is truth and so we live in some so many ways in a post-truth society and so I want to talk about that. And, and what is it that Jesus has to say about truth? Because in John 14, 6, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me. And so what does it mean that Jesus is the truth? And how can postmodern people relate to the idea of, of Jesus being the truth? And how can they also relate to him being king? Because we've got two problems here. One of those is the postmodernism just doesn't believe in those kinds of truth claims, truth claims that are absolute in any shape, form, or fashion. Um, that They just can't receive those things. It doesn't believe in any sort of overarching um, narrative that that seeks to understand the world in a, in a co- consistent and coherent way and makes claims then to being ultimately true. So there, we've got the one problem on the postmodern side that has to do with truth claims. And then on the other side, what we have is this whole idea of Jesus being king and what does it mean to have a king because that feels like a power grab to, to postmodern philosophy. Um, and whether you're a philosopher or not doesn't really make any difference because we've all sort of imbibed what the culture has told us and taught us, whether we know the philosophy behind it or not. Whether we know it's a postmodern philosophy doesn't make any difference. Whether we even know the philosophy, what we believe about truth and what we believe about the world and what we believe about power are ultimately those things that, that influence and affect us. And sometimes it, it, at every level, we need to constantly um, examine and be aware of the presuppositions that we bring to the text, the presuppositions we believe we bring to everything to do with Christianity, because Christianity is, uh, Judeo-Christianity actually, is an ultimate truth claim about how things came to be and about how things should be. And so that's the stuff that we need to constantly be paying attention to. And whether we're postmodern thinkers or not, I'm not, um, not at least not consistently postmodern on things. Um, but the other thing is, is the Enlightenment kind of brings us to a different way of examining truth and trying to put a truth through a particular kind of grid. And how do we, how do we arrive at what we consider to be truth? And so I want to talk about that a little bit today. So in the first passage we've got from 2 Samuel uh, 23, 1 to 7, um, what we've got is, these are the last words of David. 
So the, the stuff that David's saying as he's preparing to die. And so there, there's, there's a tradition in Scripture, it doesn't come up very often, but we see it, for instance, in the Jacob story, where uh, Jacob first receives his father's blessing by, well, stealing it. Um, and so that the point of that, the point of receiving the blessing at the end of somebody's life is to say, okay, you've lived into whatever life you're, you're going to have, and now here's what I want for you, having observed you through all this period of time. And then the same thing is true of Jacob, who blesses his own children and two of his grandchildren as well, Jacob's children. And so w- w- what we get here is David's last words, and it says the oracle of David. So it's sort of a prophetic word kind of... Uh, is what it's seen, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. What, a, what an epitaph <laughs> that is. So now we get David's words. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. In other words, this isn't just David speaking here. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me, and his word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. So in other words, David's saying that I'm not speaking on my own authority here. I'm speaking beyond that. These are the things that God has said to me and shown to me. And he begins with this. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So what David is telling us here is, is that, that when the, the way that you can rule justly over men begins with the fear of God. And his son Solomon will tell us that again and again and again, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And why would that be? Because it accepts a truth about God. We believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And that's the way we begin the statement of belief on the days when we have uh, communion in the church, is that we as a congregation will say together the Nicene Creed. And, And we're saying it not just with others in the congregation, we're saying it with those who've existed for 2,000 years since the death of Christ and said these are the things we believe in common with the church throughout all those 2,000 years, and we're making extraordinary truth claims, and we're making exclusionary truth claims when we say that. When we say we believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, what we're saying is there's not another one. There's only one. And it's this particular one, and we're going to tell you more about him through the course of the creed. But it begins with his authority over the earth is that he's the creator of heaven and earth. And so his authority begins there, and that's what makes him king. And so then we unpack that further, and then we come down to we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ. And so if we believe in one king and we believe in one Lord and that those two are of one substance, of one being, then we come to the, you know, sort of unalterable conclusion that if this one is king and this one is the same, then that one's king. So, but his kingship, the, the, the son's kingship, comes about not by creation, but by his sacrifice on the cross and the resurrection of the dead by the sovereign power of his father, the king. And then he ascends and he sits at the right hand of that king. And so what David says is that when you get that right, 
when you understand that you are not an overlord, there is a Lord over you, you fear God. And the fear of God then constrains your conduct and causes you to rule justly over men because you know that ultimately you're not the ruler. You're subject to rule by God. And you're accountable to him for what you do. That's true whether you're in a position of authority and kingship or whether you're just one of us. Everything we do requires us to to do it rightly and to do it well, requires us to acknowledge his overlordship, which begins with the fact that he created things. Now, in the postmodern world, he didn't create things. Things came into being on their own, in spite of the fact that there's no way that that makes any sense. You can't get something from nothing. The only thing that we say came from nothing is him, God, that everything else comes from him. And then we see in the New Testament that John plays it out and Paul plays it out that all things were created by him and through him. Jesus, that is, the Word, the incarnate Word. And so what we have to to take into consideration in all of our life, in everything we do, that we're accountable to him for that very thing because we're accountable to him not just because he created all things, but because he created us in his image. So we're responsible to maintain that image through justice, through the fear of God, trying to be like him. And then David goes on from there to say that, it, that it's a wonderful thing to live in that kind of theocratic um, rule where, where the law of God is the law of the land. David says is a wonderful thing. He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. And then he says, for does not my house stand so with God? For he's made an everlasting covenant with me, ordered in all things and secure. For he'll not cause to prosper, will he not cause to prosper all my help and all my desire? And that will look back to um, Psalm 37, 4, which, well, David wrote, where he talks about that he will give us the desires of our heart. But he'll only give us the desires of our heart to the extent that he's the first thing and the most important thing in our lives. That's the point of the first four verses of Psalm 37, that if you set everything on him, then then he will give you the desires of your heart. But it's partially because the desires of your heart will be changed <laughs> by focusing completely on him. As long as we take our, keep our eyes on the world, then our desires are not going to line up with what God wants us to have. If we set all our attention and our focus on him, then our desires will line up with his. He said, but worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away. They can't be taken by, with the hand, but the man who touches them arms himself with iron and a shaft of spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. So when you try and lay hands on other things, and that would be a worthless man, if you try and lay hands on other things, then then you're going to be consumed with fire. All the other things, and this is what Paul says, is that when you build on the foundation that is Christ, then ultimately when judgment comes, then all things will be revealed and they will be tested and tried, and only those things that survive will be found to have had any value, and they'll be tested with fire. And, and that's Paul's argument. It's David's statement here 
And it's Paul's argument. It's no different than that. Everything will be tested by fire, ultimately, and whatever remains is of God. And because that means it's permanent. It can't be destroyed. David ruled with the knowledge that God watched over him, and he was accountable to God for everything that he did. Did he do it perfectly? Heavens, no. He made mistakes as well. But David was quick to do one thing, which is to repent. He was quick to acknowledge his mistakes and go back and pay the price. He understood that it was a price to pay for sin, that God forgave, but that didn't mean there weren't consequences. And that's an important thing for us to always remember. In the gospel today, Jesus has already been put on trial, and now he's being taken before Pilate, who is the Roman governor, who has ultimate decision and authority over him in this matter, because it's up to Pilate whether he will be put to death by crucifixion or not. The Jews don't have the power to do that, and so it's turned over to Pilate, who is the one who's going to have to make this decision. So he entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, so he's gone apart from this kangaroo root court that's outside, and he's gone into his chambers. It's sort of like the judge taking a defendant into the chambers by himself to question him. And he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, do you say this of your own accord, or do others say it to you about me? Where'd you get that idea? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? And the answer is no. Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And notice, this isn't a matter of Roman law. I have no earthly idea what's going on here. I don't know this, this weird claim about king of the Jews. I, I, don't, I don't understand that. I'm not a Jew. I don't know, and I can't evaluate the claim because the claim is a religious claim. And he says, that's not the issue. He says, your people, the ones who can evaluate that claim, they're the ones who brought you here. And so what I need is, all I know is I have their word that you've claimed to be a king. What have you done? I need to hear something. And Jesus answered it and doesn't answer certainly in that way at all. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. And you can just imagine Pilate sitting there looking at him and thinking, well, okay, I have no earthly idea what that means, that your kingdom is not of this world. What world is it a kingdom of? And so he can't evaluate the claim that Jesus is making because he doesn't understand the claim that Jesus is making. Because the Jewish mind and the Roman mind are not the same, right? I mean, there's presuppositions that are brought to the, to the conversation, and, and Pilate doesn't have those presuppositions that would enable him to evaluate Jesus' claim of being a king. Or even the charge brought against him, what does it mean to be king of the Jews? And so Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. It doesn't really answer the question of, are you claiming to be the king of the Jews? Because the answer to the the question is, yes, I'm the king of the Jews. I'm not just king of the Jews, though. I'm king of everybody. So you can't see my kingdom, and you can't understand my kingdom, because it's not like yours. And and that's the way that Pilate's trying to evaluate this, is, is to determine in what way Jesus is a king. Because he's not acting like a king anywhere along the way, right? I mean, the, the only thing that he's done that, that acts in any way like he's a king is to accept the adulation of the crowds as he comes in on Palm Sunday. 
And even then, he comes in riding on the foal of a donkey, which is not a kingly way to do it, because if you're, a, if you're claiming to be a king, then a king coming into another kingdom has to come as a conqueror. But Jesus came in not as a conqueror, but one who comes in peace. He didn't come for war. And that's what Jesus says here is, is that, that, look, my, my, my servants would have been fighting on my behalf if it was a kingdom like your kingdom. If I was claiming the same kind of kingship that you that, that your kingdom claims, your your emperor claims, then then it would happen differently, right? And that's why Pilate is confused because Jesus is not doing the things that people normally do when they want to make a claim to kingship. And he says, "Okay, so you're a king." Jesus answered, "You say that I'm a king." It's just this language thing and and understanding what kind of kingdom and what kind of king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And so is Jesus making some sort of claim here that we can evaluate based on that? And how do we evaluate that claim? There are four different sort of classical and postmodern theories of truth, and let's let's look at those philosophical categories very quickly and, and see where you fall, and then maybe if, if you understand that there are other ways of, of um, claiming something to be true, then maybe this helps you to be able to speak to people who don't have and hold the truth in the same way you do. I'm saying there's one way, actually, <laughs> to, to make a truth claim, and there's one way to evaluate Jesus's truth claims, and that, that is that they have to be um, claimed as true because he claims he is the truth. And so we have to evaluate, is he the truth? And if he's the truth, then what does that mean? Does it mean that all things that he says and does are true? And I think yes is the answer to that question, that, that there's no falsehood in him. And so all the things that he says and claims, then we have to evaluate as true whether that conflicts with other things or not. And so we have to be careful about what truth claims he makes. We have to be careful about what truth claims the Bible makes, and we need not claim more truth than the Bible claims for itself. But what we can't do is separate Jesus' words, the red-letter stuff, in a lot of Bibles, we can't separate that from the Word of God and say, well, that stuff's true and that stuff's not, because what John says is Jesus is the Word. And the Word is the Word through which the world was created. And the the Word, then, also is the law given to the Jews in the first covenant, because they were intended to live under God's rule and reign, which meant keeping the law that he had given them. And so long as they did that, he promised that he would prosper them continually. And so if they lived by the truth, then they would have prosperous lives, which didn't mean necessarily that they would become multi-billionaires, because every seventh year they had to leave the land unproductive. The difference is 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 that they they failed to do that and they became false we all do it's called sin so when we are false in other words when we fail to live under the truth and we choose sinful ways then we bring all kinds of problems 
into the world, and we lose the protection of God over us. And so what we've got are these four ways of looking at truth, and we can call them theories of truth, the correspondence theory of truth, and that is whatever corresponds to observable reality is true. I'm sitting right now, and there's a computer in front of me. That's true, (laughs) because it is. The the problem we've got today is is that, no, uh, that's not the way it can be evaluated. It can't be evaluated that way by everybody because other people might say, well, that's that, you know, it's whatever. But, and it's the problem we have with human sexuality today, right? Um, I don't know. Well, yes, I'm I'm positive based on, you know, physical characteristics that you're a male. Well, no, I'm not. You are. (laughs) I mean, you see the problem there. we, We live most of us live in that place of correspondence theory of truth. That which corresponds most closely to observable reality is true. Then there's the second theory, which is the coherence theory of truth. The claims are true if they follow logically and coherently from a set of axioms or intermediate propositions. So if you've ever taken a logic class in, in college, then what you would see is, is that logic has its own rules, and those rules allow you to make statements. If this is true, then that is either true or cannot be true. Then, so if A and B are independent things, then B is not A, and A is not B. A is A, and B is B. And so then we move forward from that. If you ever had a geometry class, you used to, well, at least when I was taking geometry, you had to do this. I don't have any idea if people still do or not. But it was a way of learning logic, and that was to say that, that you, we did proofs. And I can remember walking through those proofs. I don't think I did them particularly well necessarily, but, but I can remember walking through those proofs. And so you had a set of laws that if this is true, then this must be true. And if this is true, this can't be true. And so that's the way you made determinations within geometric um, equations is that you went through a set of proofs. And that's the way this works. So it may not be—I can't maybe prove certain things by saying it's observable. But what I can do is prove to you that this is true because these other things are true. And if all these things are true, then this must also be true. That's exactly what the coherence theory of truth is. It's a provable fact. Whether it's observable or not, it's a different issue, but it can be proven logically. But we have to agree on the rules of logic. And see, we other again, we have a problem. Because we people can make statements. I mean, all week long, I've listened to people say something about this this trial that we've had with this Kyle Rittenhouse thing up in Wisconsin. And I'm not striking a position on this one way or another. What I'm, but I have one. But <laughs> what I'm saying is, is that that afterwards and, and even during the trial, I kept hearing people talking about white supremacy, and, and and I'm looking at this thing and I'm thinking, well, I think what happened here was this this white guy shot three white guys, and and they're you know th- them the facts are beyond that, but th- those are the basic facts there, and so I, I don't understand then if if we are agreeing to rules of logic, then there should be some evidence of white supremacy in what he did, because that's the claim that they continue to make. And so it's, but but wait a minute, there are no black people involved in this, so I'm not sure exactly how this corresponds or coheres, because we disagree now on the rules of logic, because you've brought in something else, some different way of looking at things. Then we get the consensus theory of truth, that which is tr- that what is true is what everyone agrees to be true, and this sort of settled science argument. But, it, but it's the same um, statement that ended up giving us something called Piltdown Man, 
which was a collection of weird bones that didn't fit one another, and most of them weren't even human, that led people to believe, well, here's the transitional species, how man evolved from apes. Well, then they found out, well, that's a hoax. That whole Piltdown thing was a total hoax. It was based on the flimsiest evidence in the world, but everybody wanted it to be true, and so everybody agreed that it was true. And that's the consensus theory of truth. The consensus theory of truth frequently can prove wrong. Uh, mob rule is what it's called. And then there's the pragmatic theory of truth, that, that what is true is what's useful or beneficial to you. So it's the way that, that we can navigate life. One way we can navigate life is by looking at things through that lens of what's true for me. And it's true for me to the extent that it works for me in some shape, form, or fashion. And so the, what we have to say is, is that, that Jesus is not looking for a consensus of whether we believe it to be true or not. He's saying this is true, period, end of sentence. And he's not looking for, um, for us to, to decide whether it works for us, in spite of the fact that too often Christianity becomes that thing that's sold to people as this will work for you. If you do these things, then these things will happen, and good things will happen. So if you just do these things, then you'll be prospered. And so that's a pragmatic way of looking at truth. And that's wrong. And the coherence and the correspondence theories here both apply. Because you can say, if David, then, you know, and so that's the, and then, so Jesus is in that line, but you can't prove it through those statements that precede his death and resurrection. You can't, you can say, I believe him to be Messiah, but then the resurrection says he is the Messiah, because he's the only person ever resurrected from the dead. And so that means he's a different kind of thing from everything that came before him and everything that has come since him. So that's a huge truth claim. And it's attested by witnesses, by the disciples, by the women, by, Paul says, several hundred people on different occasions. And so they're, they're, it's attested by witnesses, and those witnesses attested to that in writing and in proclamation, public proclamation, during the lifetime of those who could have disputed it. It's a pretty strong truth claim. They're not making it after the fact, a few hundred years after the fact. No, it was made while people were alive who could have disputed these things were true or not. Did he heal people, as it says in the Gospels, yes or no? Did he resurrect from the dead? Was he crucified? All those things. Did he die? All that stuff is attested by witnesses, and so, so the, the logical proofs that lead up to this moment where he's sitting there with Pilate are different from the logical proofs that follow after the resurrection, because there's additional proof has been given. And so the correspondence theory, though, is sort of the way that Pilate's looking at this, because he said, I don't see any evidence that you're a king. And that's why Jesus says, my kingdom's not of the world, otherwise you'd see this thing. So Jesus claims, though, listen to this, for this purpose, this purpose, I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And who is the truth in that, or what is the truth in that? It's the Father, because he came to bear witness to the Father. And so he's still under the lordship, under the rulership of the Father. But that is who he has come to reveal. And that truth, then, we've got to unpack that. 
Is he God? That's part of the truth that Jesus came to reveal. But what kind of God is he? he? The job of the Jews and the job of the church today is exactly that. It's no different from Jesus's purpose. His purpose was to reveal and bear witness to the truth. And that's our job too. That was the job that's always been given to his people. They are kingdom and priests serving our God, which means our job is to make him known. Our purpose is to reveal and bear witness to the truth. In the same way Jesus does, which is to say, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. You either do listen to the voice, revealing truth, speaking truth, or you do not. And that is the secret of evangelism. We're called to only do that one thing, not the result. The result isn't up to us. It's only up to him. Because it's only possible by the giving of his Holy Spirit to receive that word as true. In the final lesson today, it's Revelation 1, verses 4. B through 8, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and was and is to come. That's a huge truth claim. He's the one who has always been and always will be. He is the only eternal being in the universe. That one, John says, huge claim. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. What did Jesus say he came to do? To bear witness to the truth. So was he a faithful witness? Yes. How do I know that? How do I prove that? He was resurrected from the dead. <clears throat> and he says that he, he is to him who loves us. Well, I'm sorry, I missed Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, that's the resurrection, and the ru- ruler of kings on earth. That's a difficult, difficult truth claim to prove. It's a truth claim nonetheless that Jesus does rule over kings. There's very little evidence of that sometimes. Think Hitler, think Mussolini, think Napoleon, think, you know, almost any emperor who ever ruled. Think of those. So he's the ruler of those kings. Ultimately, he brings them up and sets them down. They are not eternal, so they can't be continuous kings and lords. They just have a season. He says, to him who loves us, That's a nice thing to know about your king. He loves you. He has freed you from our sins by his blood, Jesus' blood. So he has set us free from the judgment that would otherwise be against us, and he's made us a kingdom, priests, to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So dominion is kingship. So John has said both of them are kings, and Jesus is the ruler of the kings on the earth. He said, Behold, he's coming in the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was, who is and was and is to come, the Almighty. It, those are extraordinary truth claims. Ultimately, what, it, what we're told is exactly here. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Not all people in all tribes, but all tribes. So there's, there's no group of people on this earth who will universally acclaim him as Lord. And because of that, they will wail on account of him. Because of the reality of judgment. Now, are these provable? Is judgment provable? Is him coming in the clouds provable? Or is it a faith-based claim? Well, it is a faith-based claim. But is it provable? Well, it depends. It depends on whether you accept Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. 
if he is the way, the truth, and the life, and he's the one who made the claims that he would come again in judgment and that we would have eternal life with him if we are found in him, then we can believe those. If we believe that he is the truth and he bore witness to the truth, then we can accept the claims that he makes as true. And that's an important thing. And we have to insist on truth. We have to insist that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And other truth claims don't stand the test unless they claim what he claims about himself and the world around him and about eternity. And so if you're in Christ today, then what I encourage you to do is to do two things. That is to accept all the things that he said as true. And he said, remember all things from Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation. All those are the Word of God. They're all inspired, and they all came about through the superintendence of the Holy Spirit to make those things Scripture for us. Therefore, those things are true in that way. But all the words of Scripture are true because they are the words of the Word himself, Jesus. And so it's, it's our job, then, and our joy, to bear witness to that same truth in the same way that he bore witness to the truth. And that is fearlessly and tirelessly, with great joy and with love. And that's all we're called to do. We're called to bear witness to the truth in the same way that Jesus' mission was to bear witness to the truth. And so that's our call, it's our claim, and it's our joy. We do it into a world that no longer believes the same things about truth that we do. So the most important thing we can do is not just proclaim that truth in words, but to show with the obedience of our lives to the Word of God that we really do believe that it's true, and we are really submitted to the overlordship of Jesus Christ, and that He is our King. And if He is our King, then we should be the most joyful and peaceful people on the face of the earth.